Anyone who's been anywhere knows the stories that travel yields. I dare say that a reason we travel is to have something to talk about. Having been grounded by the pandemic, the memories of and desire for travel have provided comfort and hope. A lot of us can't wait to get back on a long haul flight. For most, travel is a pleasure pursuit, but for many, work travel has been an essential part of their professional lives. Travel can be a fundamental part of the creative process, a key aspect of commercial growth, or ordinarily a prerequisite to getting things made. The Joel Found podcast will talk with incredible founders, entrepreneurs, and creatives about their experience of work travel. We'll hear the origin stories of their brands, how travel has played a part in their success, and get a taste of how they like to travel. Here's a chance to imagine you've strolled into the first class lounge and found a seat next to someone who's going places. Amanda Henderson is the inimitable founder of the iconic Gloss Creative. For over 20 years, Amanda and her incredible team have been making magnificence across visual merchandising, eventing, and installations. Amanda's profound talent sees her conceiving and executing entire creative universes with an unceasing freshness and edge. A true creative luminary in the Australian design world, I think it's fair to say that Amanda has achieved icon status. Amanda's approachability, enthusiasm, and collaborative nature make her one of the most popular people in the business. Amanda's work has taken her to many places, imbuing Gloss with a worldliness that makes it globally relevant. Today, we'll talk about some of those places, Amanda's extraordinary work, and home in on one of Amanda's favorite destinations. Together, we'll plot our escape. Amanda, thanks for joining me on the Joel Found podcast. This continues our ongoing in-podcast conversation following my time on your incredible podcast, The Creative Trust. I'm excited for another conversation. Absolutely. I am so excited that Joel Found is underway. <laughs> uh, I'm thrilled and so happy, firstly, for you and what you're, you know, you're embarking on, but secondly, another podcast to listen to about travel. How great is that? I think the world was waiting for one more podcast. So, Especially about travel. <laughs> and I love this idea of about work travels. It's brilliant. Thank you. Uh, so you've been reflecting on Gloss a lot lately, given you celebrated your 20th birthday last year. It's a fantastic success story. So instead of reflection for a minute, I thought I'd start by asking you to define where Gloss is today. Like most companies, I guess that we're in a rebuilding phase. You know, we, all, we literally stopped in 2020. So the beautiful thing is we get to control a bit more. You know, we've had a chance to think about the type of projects that we want to be involved with. Um, increasingly, we've become interested in cultural and art-based projects. So, you know, our work with NGV um, has really shown us that you can do projects, you know, with creativity at their core almost before commerce. So that's, you know, we've always been led in the commercial world, but I think now we're looking at cultural areas to be involved with, and that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty exciting. We also love working with collaborators and clients who have some pretty lofty aspirations. So we love to sort of hang on their aspirations as well, and I think that picks us up and lifts us up and elevates our work as well. So... I love it when we work with those types of people. I guess you'd say we're in a state of freedom. You know, I feel very free about what we do now. And I guess that's why also, you know, we started our podcast, uh, The Creative Trust, as kind of a give back reflection of all of the thoughts and the people that we've worked with. And 
somehow that reflection is sort of becoming part of the future as well. So I think that's, that's kind of where we are now. I love that. I mean, I think that it all relates back to the 20 years plus worth of work you've put in. So on that note, you know, you, you know, I'm, sh- um, I'm sure many would agree that you've done something highly enviable, which is to build and maintain a successful career and business with creativity at its absolute heart. For those who are listening, who are looking to do something similar, tell us exactly how you did it. I did what I felt I needed to do. You know, so from my creative core, I saw a a way forward of things that I was interested in and uh, starting your own business gives you that freedom to control where you go. So I was definitely led by my intuition and fortunately I had enough skill to back it up. I had, I could back the dream because I'd already had 20 years in the corporate world. So some of the things that might've been more difficult, say when I was younger at 42, it was assumed knowledge. And I think it was a great basis to spring from. So I think I built it. I kind of had already built it by the time I'd started in a way, you know, that, you know, that's one of my favorite sayings that the future has been created. It just hasn't been distributed yet. So I do think some of the work that I'd done in the last years of Country Road in the bigger um, press showings and showrooms definitely led me in the direction of where I was going. So when I stepped out, I really only needed to turn the network on and then things, you know, started small but snowballed. So I think um, that was great. I would say our longevity and the maintenance of the business has really been that we enjoyed every day in our studio. We just enjoyed every day and we kept building on long-term relationships, one project at a time. And I think that's still true today is the way I would go about that of building relationships because building relationships builds business over time. And keeping creativity at your core, making your days revolve around the work and the creativity, that leads to that longevity as well. So practically, you know, when you're, under pressure or when you're going through, you know, a stressful conception of an event or an installation, how do you maintain that ability to focus on the collaboration? Mm. Uh, it's, it's a constant tension and I guess it's the trick to be able to um, solve anything's creative questions that come up, practical questions as you go along the process, as you know, we talk about the process all of the time, but I feel like if you have a good relationship with people, when say a client, you know, gets a lot of information from above where they sit and things change, you can help them. You can, you can show, you know, you can solve problems for them and you can be a part of the solutions. You know, it's, it's a, it's a partnership. It totally is. And by the same token, if we're struggling with something, I feel quite comfortable to say, we're not there yet guys we're not onto this yet Uh, but we will be next week so I think it's that it is it's it's kind of like the it's kind of like any friendship really so you and I talk about creativity a lot um it's it's one of our favorite topics and actually what we talked about when I was a guest on your incredible podcast the creative trust and I'd encourage everyone to go back and listen to every episode because it really is 
a masterclass. Your business is called Gloss Creative. Your podcast is the Creative Trust. <laughs> creativity is something pulsates through you. Um, we've talked about creativity as a construct. But tell me what it means to you. A couple of weeks ago, we had Stuart Wolford and Chris Contos on one of our episodes talking about styling, or loosely talking about styling. Of course, we veered into everything else but styling. And one of the things that Stuart said is that he felt his creativity was the way that he navigated through life. And I was like, oh, my God, I wish I'd said that because it's so true and it resonated with me 100%. It's at the core of my every day. Every day I'm looking for the beauty in things, in people, in art, in life. I'm looking for the joy and the beauty. I'm a joy seeker basically. But above and beyond that, I guess the most expansive way that I see creativity for everyone is as creators and problem solvers. So I do feel like if you can think in new ways, have new thoughts, and then combine that with what you already know and have inside your core and use it and combine it in a new way, that's creativity and it's not necessarily artistic. I love that. Um, it's really an, it's an incredible um, rumination from Stuart on creativity as a navigation tool. Um, so true, and isn't it's it? So pertinent to what we're discussing today in terms of travel. Oh yes, definitely. So, so that was that's a good one. I'll keep that. So, as 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 a fan of everything you do, you make the creative part look easy. Um, but to to achieve the kind of longevity you've had in the industry, you need to be good at running a business as well. How have you built and maintained those skills? So, as I mentioned before, I started my business when I was forty-two. So I felt like I had quite a lot of skills, you know, creative skills, presentation skills, the basics. But I guess to run a business, the best way I would describe what I've done is I've kept the back end of the business simple, really, really simple. And to describe that, think of low overheads, completely flat company structure and one amazing bookkeeper who really cared. And has been there the whole Props time. Props to oh, Albina yeah. Azzolini. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, the other things that I do on a daily basis is I pay attention if I'm quoting a job. I'll work with Jahan or whoever we're, you know, Luce and Albina when we're quoting. There are definite areas that I pay complete attention to to ensure that the core of everything is okay. The other thing I've done is I've outsourced the skills from day one that I don't have. Um, and I think I've been able to sort of emotionally distance myself enough to see what my business has needed. And I think that sort of lens of pulling back the macro lens and as you're founding a business, knowing yourself and going, actually, I'm not so great at that maybe I could get someone who's got those skills. And I think if you pay attention to it, um, you can overcome that. And I think we're kind of a great example of that. So um, the other way I've maintained our business, obviously, and we're talking about this today, <laughs> is um, through travel, through collaboration and motivation I get from people and travel um, as you work beside them and travel with them. Fantastic. 
you just touched on um, being able to remove the emotion from some aspects of your business. That's a really interesting idea given creativity often is related to ability to emote. Absolutely. Um, so maybe just tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, in, it's really interesting. Increasingly uh, through myself and through the people that I talk to and know, I'm seeing a relationship between people who have emotional intelligence but also are great in the commercial aspects of things, who are great with their left brain as well. Often people who are creative are also great at maths, are also great at organisation. So I'm noticing that if you can do both, um, you, you've got a career and a you know, a great, great life. Fantastic. So um, I like to ask people who run brands that I admire, the brands and founders that inspire them. I guess generally more than brands, I'm actually inspired by people I work with. You know, what, you know, the, if you think of the first thing that comes into your head, I always think of the people I work with when people ask me who I'm inspired by, I don't know why that is, but they're the first people I think of. But if I do have to name a few <laughs> organ brands that I love, um, it's particularly in the fashion world. And I do love the fashion world because it leads change. It leads inspiration and exploration of new ideas. And that's why it's so attractive and useful to us. So I guess Hermes is, you know, a saddle maker in Paris, but what they have done over a very long period of time is create desire in this brand, but also still delivering the quality and the beauty that's timeless and so full of luster and desire i i think it's it's incredible you know it's it's quite hard to find thing it's quite when i say rare i do know that when you travel if you see something in an hermes store in tokyo you won't see it in london or paris you actually have to shop as you go i've worked that out it's <laughs> not just homogenous they don't just send everything and things run out and they don't repeat them yeah i think the reason one of the reasons I, I probably knew your work before I knew you, but one of the things I love about what you do is you create entire universes. And I, I think of someone lately like um a Chris Lucas who's doing that time and time again with the the restaurants that he continues In to Melbourne, kind of yeah. kill it with. Um and that really impresses me because it's a very difficult thing to do, which is to sort of create this vision and then execute it in, in what can be very challenging circumstances or Absolutely. markets. Absolutely. And, you know, that's where I look to brands like Gucci and Prada. Um, you know, obviously I love everything Gucci. I think, um, you know, long-standing emotional nonchalance from the 70s, you know, just makes me pretty happy. But then when you think about the distribution networks and the way you receive your goods from them when you buy online. It's so polished and so well resolved and delivered. It is a universe, as you say. Everything about it pulls you into that universe. The stores, the packaging, 
the goods themselves that you can wear and wear and wear time and time again. And every time you put on that Gucci loafer, you feel a bit better about the day. It's it's hard to put your finger on, but you do feel it. And, and I guess that's because the people responsible are creating this incredible consumer experience. Oh, it is. And it pulsates through every aspect every of it. touch point yeah. isn't it? it it is pretty incredible the other um brand i just love on a smaller scale is what del pozo have done uh, jesus del pozo that every time we go to pick a fashion model to put in any of our illustrations i always say to anyone who's new just go and see what jesus del pozo is doing they'll be in something there and every part of his clothing is whimsical but made for impact. So often whimsical clothes take up this sort of, you know, whimsical and natural vibe. His are whimsical, but they're always like super structured and have really great, the mid-tones that we love as well. I feel I, I should have um, prefaced this um, podcast by saying everyone should have a pen while they listen because you always <laughs> give the best sound bites. Whimsical but impactful. I love that. Yeah, there's so much yeah. impact. It's, it makes me very happy. So when you say founders, when I thought long and hard, there actually are a couple of people that come to mind. I think what the Future Lab have done in London, Martin Raymond and Chris Sanderson over a 20-year period has been incredible. I think as a resource for creative people globally, every year they have given us some of their time, whether it's, you know, a lecture or whatever, or when I've gone to visit London, they've always been incredibly uh, welcoming and giving. And I think the service that they have given to creative people around the world to inspire them has been incredible. So I, I think, and they're super nice people as well. So I guess I'd like to, when I think of those founders, they're amazing. Uh, so trying to be diplomatic, until relatively recently, much of Australia's creative output, particularly in the retail world, has been quite provincial. Um, as I said, there's always been a global edge to Gloss Creative's work. So I, I've assumed this is a, as a result of your worldview. Um, how does travel factor into your work? We love travel. And the travel that I do isn't pressured. It's very slow. Like I don't have to produce anything in particular. I just get to go and soak it in. So there's no doubt that travel is a huge inspiration for me. The best way I can describe it is when I step onto a plane, my brain kicks into another realm. Zara always says to me, remember, mum, the closer you are to heaven, the more you can hear. And I think that's really beautiful in a way. Um, you know, when I'm sitting on that plane, I instantly feel transported. All the everyday stuff just falls away and all of a sudden, you know, there's this, my mind's open. So I think um, I'm open and I'm listening. I'm out of the everyday sort of thing and it's time to think. And I, I do like the slowness of travel in a way as well. And everything I see does stay with me. And at some point across the, you know, the next month, year, it's expressed, not in a, oh, I'm taking notes, I better do that for this, although that can happen. It's I'll have a feeling or I'll see the way that people do things. And I think about 
how did that happen? What was the level of thinking that created that? And then I go, I look at it and I go, actually, I, you can do that. Nothing's stopping you. And I guess it's this thinking and seeing what others do that inspires me. It's, a, uh, it's an incredible example of a non-traditional business trip because, you know, when you and I have talked about work travel, you kind of don't have the traditional, I'm going to New York, I've got seven meetings. I mean, I dare I say you couldn't do what you do without the travel that you experience. It's a really interesting reminder for me when I, when I um, created Sunny Life, you know, my experience, my worldview was pretty narrow and I used to go to China to manufacture and I'd go to the Hong Kong fairs. And then the first time I went to Maison Objet in Paris. Mind my, blown. My mind was blown and I wrote like a four-page email on my BlackBerry. That's how long ago it was on my BlackBerry to, to my business partner saying, we have to reimagine our entire business because I saw people who were making products over 500 years and real, they, they were artisans and they were crafting and it really it opened up my mind to what the possibilities of what I was doing could be. So um, I think it's a similar thing to what you're talking about. So on that note, what are some of the places around the world that inspire you the most? Obviously, Tokyo and Japan is a huge inspiration and I'm, sh I'm sure I'll be saying that word a lot more today. But honestly, when I think of the different countries that I go to, I don't go to countries that are way out of the way. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a city dweller, so I do love the big cities. And what I feel is maybe if you go to New York, you, you'll see something there. You'll, you'll get a picture of retail or food or colour or something like that, and then you'll go to Paris maybe, then Copenhagen, then London. and each place has its own vibe, its own inspirations. But what I find is after three countries or four countries, especially if you go over different continents, you have a feeling about world trend. You have a feeling about what's happening in interiors, what's happening in art galleries, in exhibition design. You get a sense from a fashion store, oh, the warmer colour palette is in, but this time it's been reinvented with that, you know, because New York fashion houses will do it one way, Paris will do it another, um, and then you go to Copenhagen and realise colour palettes don't matter at all, forget that, just do what you like, and then back to London that kind of puts it all together for you. So it's never one country for me. It's always a combination of the world trip that informs my picture. Well, it's funny because I think one of the hallmarks of gloss is that you've got this ability to transcend trend because mm. you're not you're not a slave to it. You're really just taking elements of it and then filtering it through your own lens. Absolutely. And I feel like that's part of having your own style and people can see it that it's come from a core. So I love the idea of a filtering system, you know, and that's true. I filter out the things that I think that's not for us. Or, oh my gosh, we need to explore this further. And, you know, having been in fashion for a very long time, I can give advice to all of a lot of a younger generation about what trends to take up. I want to understand how you might immerse yourself in a place you visit. Like what, what does a typical day when you're traveling look like? You know, when you talk about emotion 
and, you know, my mind's free. As soon as I get into a city, I have this overriding sort of feeling that I live there all of a sudden. <laughs> you know, that feeling, it's like, I'm in London. I'm a Londoner. When, when you get asked for directions when you're in another place, <laughs> it's the best. And I have been asked. I do pride myself on becoming a local. So I feel like I just get into the people's headset around me, which I it's kind of fun. So you sort of take on that nonchalant vibe, you know, if you're having breakfast at the Whitby and, you know, in New York, um, and that the people who sit around you are very cool and, you know, that sort of thing. So I think in the morning, I think I like to just immerse myself in the place, eat where the locals eat, that sort of thing. And I love to watch people going about there every day. That tells me so much about, you know, the streetscape and the people in it. Just gives me, you get the vibes immediately from that. I guess then I construct my day around the big things, an exhibition I'll want to see, a shopping precinct I need to go to, and little bits of food. Hello, food. <laughs> Little pieces of moments where I'll be, I'll try that. I'll eat that. Oh my God, that looks great. Let's go in here. And then, you know, I'll make sure I'm into bookshops. I'll go to the theatre. We'll have dinner. All very important. So I just sort of freelance across a number of things that what takes my fancy, I guess. I love the idea of rather than visiting a place, living in a place for a short period of time. Very short, certainly. Yeah, but I live here now. Yeah, <laughs> I just take that. It's, it's like a little movie, you know, cue the Nancy Myers music. So when you are putting these days together, how do you plan your trips? Do you do, do, you do a lot of research? Do you talk to different people? Definitely. I Obviously, I have, I mean, Instagram's such a great source these days. I've got a folder when in Paris, when in London, you know, places I need to see. But I do do a lot of research. And it doesn't have to be down to the last day. It's not so much when things are happening as the bigger things I want to achieve. You know, if I know that there's a certain exhibition on or a new building or the big things, I plant the big things in. And then I'm, you know, put smaller things around it. But it's it's very flexible. But also, you know, it's not just the big stuff I go for. It's the small stuff. So as soon as I get into a city, I'll actually look up where the local fabric shop is, where the local haberdashery store is, the craft store, all the homewares hubs, of course, the ribbon store, deep immersion you know i've got one of my favorite ribbon stores is in tokyo and how I many how many ribbon stores do you like all of them <laughs> every ribbon store um there's a store in tokyo where i watched a boy literally for an hour and a half because i was there for a very long time going up and down literally matching trim to something he was making for an hour he went through every color taking it out meticulously looking at it putting some aside and I was like, I've found my people. <laughs> <laughs> so I love the big stuff and I love the small stuff. I think that's a, that's a really great approach to pick something you're passionate about and then look at the local version of it. Definitely. And, 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 that, and that's a really human 
experience as well to watch how people are in those environments? Definitely. I, I do feel like whatever you're interested in here, personally, you should look at over there. You know, for obviously the people I know, a lot of people love cars. So, you know, when we've been in Japan, we've been obsessed with looking at different cars as well. And you always learn stuff from that. I know you have an incredible network. So how does that factor into your experience of travel? I love to take my network with me or meet my network overseas. You know, if you're at Milan, obviously there's a lot of Australian designers as well. So catching up with them when you're there, having a great time, going out to dinner, you know, is always is always so much fun. It's like the Olympics for designers or the it, Rugby World Cup for designers. It totally yeah. is. You're on a train to some sort of nondescript distant place, but all of a sudden there's this really well-dressed looking people getting on the train and you realise it's people from Melbourne, <laughs> which is great. So I do love to take my network with me, you know, we've had, and meet up with my network overseas, you know, going out for dinner and that sort of thing is pretty amazing. Um, in London, I'd love to say that the boys from the Future Lab um, Chris Sanderson and Martin Raymond over 20 years, you know, have really provided a lot of creatives around the world a view of global creativity. And, you know, when I've been over there and caught up with them, they're incredibly generous with their time. And I feel like what they've really added to the global network for people, even if you're not traveling, I think they make people feel global and knowledgeable, you know, I guess global really says knowledgeable to me. Um, so you were one of the first people that I shared the big Joel found concept with, and I can tell you now that you were one of the people that helped inspire the whole idea. Quite simply, I wanted to create a travel business that gave everyone the opportunity to experience a place with someone like you. So thankfully, not only were you super encouraging of the idea, but you also committed quickly to, um, creating a gloss creative journey as part of my first collection. So you're actually the second um, trip we're doing. You picked Japan as the place you wanted to share. I think that was the first thing that sprang to mind. Definitely. Why Japan? It's like nowhere else on the planet. If you think of the logistics, it's only 10 hours away. So, you know, it's a day's work. You can get on a plane in Sydney at 9am and be sitting in your hotel room at 10 o'clock at night. So it's I see it as my Bali. You know, people go for a holiday to Bali. I'm going to Japan. So I feel like it's really easy. It's effortless to get there. It's not the big 30-hour journey. Japan has cities of paradox. I feel that it combines heritage and its history with modernity effortlessly. Uh, you know, where else can you see hundreds year old Shinto shrines next to the coolest, brutalist mid-century things. You know, I've seen incredible mid-century places there, coolest cars. Uh, there are so many iconic visual snapshots in people's heads with Japan. I mean, think of the lace doily seat covers in the Toyota Crown cabs, their love of anything French, you know, the French pastries, the French cakes, the packaging, the formality that goes with that. The commuters on their day to work, just to watch that just is like nothing else. And, of course, 
the cherry blossom. So many reasons. I can't, you'll, yeah, we've got a lot to cover here. <laughs> you said that it's a very easy visit from Australia, but I think Japan is still quite an exotic destination for a lot of people. Why, why do you think it's viewed that way? Well, obviously the language is different. And uh, while people speak English in Tokyo, when you step out of Tokyo, it's really the younger generation that speak English. I mean, everyone speaks English there, but to a better or lesser extent. One of the ways that I look at Japan and Tokyo is that it's an incredible mix of both Western culture as well as their own culture. So I feel like they're so adept at doing both. I mean, if you think of the incredible local food they have, but they also love international fashion brands and they do it bigger and better than almost, you know, the Maisons in Paris. So I feel like it's this beautiful combination of both the East meets West effortlessly. On that note, in, in planning our incredible itinerary, which we'll talk to a, a little bit more, you've described J Japan to me so vividly. Vividly, I have pages and pages of references from you, like its culture, its style, the people, the food. I've only personally visited Tokyo once, so I can't, I can't compare with what you've experienced um, over your eight visits. We've called our journey sensory enchantment. Um, tell us about Japan's effect on the senses. All-consuming. The variety of architecture and its density is the first thing that people notice. It's a metropolis. It's huge. You know, if you're from Australia, it's the biggest city you would have ever seen. So I think that has its own kind of buzz around it. The buildings are amazing. Things can also be a bit weird. You know, there's a sense of whimsy about this place as well. There's an incredible, you know, formality but also some craziness as well, which you can feel in the streets. It's sometimes haphazard. The little laneways are haphazard and, you know, it, but if you're down near the palace, it's very structured and very formal and, and beautiful, you know, um, and it has a busyness that you can feel. It, it's like an optimism, I guess, uh, at the people as they go about their day. I feel like they're industrious. They're also very courteous and outwardly kind. Um, I think uh, the Japanese people in general, uh, because they have huge cities, they know how to conduct themselves in public situations very courteously. And that's why it's a great place to travel as well, because they're always kind to um, foreigners as well, which is amazing. I mean, the, the list goes on. The gardens, the ikebana, the cherry blossom, their incredible view on luxury, which is always nature-based. It's always peaceful, but somehow elevated as well. They also love cartoons. They love Western icons of fun. They know how to have fun and be adults as well, which I adore. I mean, the that's list a, is endless. That's a perfect description of you, fun adult. <laughs> <laughs> um, so t talk to us about the itinerary that 
you've pulled together. So it's a few days in Tokyo to begin with. Um, then we've got two days where we head out to the countryside in a place called Hakone. And then we end up in Kyoto for another few days. So tell us why you picked those places for your journey. I'm so excited about this. So I guess Tokyo is like the grounding experience within everything. And it's, we'll be doing different days, doing different things, but I guess we'll get firstly a feel of how Japan is. We'll get a feel for classic Tokyo, the things you need to know, the places you need to understand, see how the city works with obviously its train network, that sort of thing as well. And then we'll start to discover the galleries, the stylish part of Tokyo, the innovative part of Tokyo. So I think we'll have a day on design, that sort of thing, visiting galleries and studios and talking with creative people. And then obviously shopping is a huge thing for me. I do feel that from shopping, you can tell so much about a place. It's not just about buying objects. You're really seeing how the people shop, what they think is important to them. And um, I think the shopping districts, and there are many of them, uh, we'll spend a lot of time in. So I'm pretty excited about that. I think, and, I think you'll be able to teach um, the, your journey companions a thing or two about shopping. Oh, I, I, I hope so. I hope they love shopping because <laughs> I'm into it. And then I guess, you know, seeing Tokyo from above will get up high and you get the understanding of the enormity of it, which will be amazing. I think the countryside, you know, as you mentioned, we're going to Hakone. What I think is important there is to see how, once again, they view luxury. And as I said, it's always surrounding nature. Um, it's very peaceful. It's calming. And I, I'm loving this sort of busyness that Japan has, but also this tranquility. It can turn it on when it needs to. You know, when you're in a train and in, the, in Tokyo itself, there are people you know, holding the rails of the train, almost falling asleep because they're, you know, so working so hard and, you know, get up really early. They're pretty tired. But then when you, you know, go out further to the ryokans and the onsens, then all of a sudden there's this peace and beauty and that's where the heritage comes in. Um, so we'll be going to the countryside and then part of my favourite part of this, obviously, is going to an onsen. So the experiences that I've had with onsen is that the people there who are helping you at the onsen are so caring. They care that you have a great time. They care that your needs are met and they really mean it. You know how sometimes when you're traveling, you know, it's it can be a bit superficial. I do feel in those onsens they are truly trying to create an element of rest and respite for you, which I think is absolutely beautiful. After that, we're going to get on bullet train, uh, the Shinkansen, which is an experience if you haven't been on a train before at Shinkansen. It is amazing. It is so fast. You can almost not look out the window because the scenery is flashing past so fast. It's immaculately clean. You get a beautiful seat and they even have the trolley lady 
coming through the aisle, you know, selling you the ubento or, or the isocremu, which is their ice cream. So you can buy anything. You can buy pocky, you can buy lollies, but you can buy a full, beautiful Japanese lunch as well. So the Shinkansen, to be able to stand at that platform and, you you know, you hear about it, oh, yeah, the trains are great. If it's at 9.31, it is at 9.31 that it pulls up the door where you're meant to be seating at that time and you walk on and you sit down. It's pretty incredible. No one else in the world has trains like Japan and it's an amazing experience. Uh, as someone who loves punctuality, I'm going to personally oh, love that. you will be in heaven. Uh, so you touched on the hospitality and, and the genuineness of the hospitality you've experienced over there. Tell us about some of the hotels you've selected because I think um, they've they've added another layer to the itinerary that's really interesting. One of the first work trips I did was to open a country road store in Kobe after after the earthquake. And I, at that time, I was sent to a hotel called the Okura, which was at the time of maybe a 40-year-old hotel. 50-year-old, 40-year-old hotel. So it was quite inexpensive. And the travel agent sent, rather than your big five stars, sent me there. And I was like, I wonder what this is like. Anyway, we got there and it was older, but it was the most beautiful mid-century hotel foyer I had ever seen. Think lofty, high, high ceilings, beautiful honey woods, olive sludgy green carpet, low-lying comfortable chairs, just, you know, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Um, so we in Tokyo, we'll be staying at the Okura that they have renovated. Um, so well, I'm dying to see what that's like. So what's interesting about the Okura, it's actually very famous. It was featured in James Bond movie. See, there you go. Um, you Only Live Twice with Sean Connery. So in the 60s see? when it would have been at the height of chic. And in looking at it, they've refurbed it. It's spectacular now, but um, it's so interesting that it's a really um, quintessential Tokyo hotel. So you, it's a great selection for the first few days. Um, tell us about the Mitsui in, in Kyoto. So once again, uh, this idea, I mean, Kyoto is about history. We're going to see some of my, I haven't even touched on Kyoto, but that is the place. It's a big, once again, huge city based around history. You know, this is where all the big shrines are. Can Rocco and the most amazing Zen gardens, you know, where they rake the stones around the bigger stones, that sort of thing. Um, so the Mitsui, high levels of nature-based luxury once again. And, you know, traditional but modern. I mean, even the oldest tatami room that you stay in in Japan still feels modern. It feels relevant. It feels so now. It's completely timeless. So I do feel from the places you stay when you go away, they give you inspiration and obviously respite from the day that you've had. You know, a lot of people might say, oh, stay, you know, you don't really stay in the hotel. You're out and about every day. I have to be quiet in that conversation because I feel the hotel gives you a whole nother world and a layer and a richness to your travel that is is so valuable to me. I'm 
100% with you on that. I, I always say, no, I actually do. When I get back from my day no. out, so five o'clock, six o'clock before dinner, those three hours in the hotel are really important. Exactly. So, it's kind of like the glue that built, that links all of the amazing experiences you have during the day. To come back to a hotel that has a feeling about it and the people care about the how they can help you is very rare and i feel that's what we'll get when you when you showed me the mitsui uh, i saw i like i researched it and found that it was designed by andre fu who designed the upper see, house see. so like for me and that's, that's one of your your and ross's favorites a massive tick great um, our timing is um end of march 2023 and that actually um, purposeful to coincide with the cherry blossom festival which is happening now actually as we mm. speak instagram's full of it exactly so on on what is an audio medium can you explain or describe the cherry blossom festival the best way i can describe cherry blossom is through the gloss lens which is full immersion it's a naturally occurring set design um, it's literally like the best scenography you'll ever see but nature made it so it's pretty important there's so much of it it's everywhere and I guess for the country it's the same way that we might view spring carnival it's it's a big thing to be celebrated everyone is you know they're enjoying that the spring is happening and their seasons happen a little bit more suddenly than ours you know all of a sudden it's freezing 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 and all of a sudden there's there's the blossom there within two weeks you know so um I think the cherry blossom is the most magical time to be there. And that's why I've nominated March because it's it'll just add this magic to your view of Tokyo. We're, we're it's gonna, pretty amazing. We're going to do something fun. We're going to have a cherry blossom picnic. <laughs> Can't wait for that. We'll hit, I mean, the parties, they call them Hanami, the parties that they have. Um, I've been to one in Weno Park. And everyone just sits around on their blankets, having a picnic and drinking sake till they drop. <laughs> so, you know, I have had a few marriage proposals while I've been there. To, uh, to you? Yes, oh. in the park. Wow. What okay. did Eric think of those? <laughs> he, he was just laughing. <laughs> it was all fine till I stood up and they saw how tall I was. <laughs> I was shocked. <laughs> um, but so much fun and you know, full, as I said, full set design, but nature made it. And now to, to go back to one of your favorite hobbies, the shopping. So tell us a little bit more about your experience of shopping in Japan. Everywhere, every day. So from the, I guess from whether it's from the tiny little lanes, as I, you know, talked about the shops that I love, the little ribbon shops, and there's a whole fabric street there, um, which is amazing as well to the big luxury brands in Ginza and everything in between, I think you have to touch it all. Right down to the kiosks at the railway station, I find them fascinating as well, the way they compartmentalise in their stationary shops. I mean, the uh, Tokyo Hands, obviously, no trip to Japan would be complete without five floors of Tokyo Hands for those who are crafty or arty as well. So... I think a typical um, shopping thing for me is to take it all in. And once again, there are amazing districts, you know, through Otomasando, 
to Aoama. There's all of these just beautiful buildings. And I think a lot of the architecture, modern architecture, you'll see there right next to some of the most beautiful old, old things and little tiny cottages and um, little things in between, you know, I think uh, pretty amazing. So, and then we'll wind our way down to Ginza where, you know, think of flash, big lights, big Dior buildings, uh, that sort of thing will go everywhere. Amazing. So um, maybe everyone needs to bring a spare bag. Definitely. Well, that's my first, one of my travel hacks. Um, I travel with a suitcase in a suitcase when I leave Australia. So that's pretty important so that magically when you think, oh, I won't buy that much, magically when you do, you don't have to run out to a store, a $2 store to get another one. You've already got it. Um, so we're going to share a lot more info on Japan as we lead up. Um, but my last question for the podcast, because we can't fill it all in, is um, something that we haven't included on our itinerary, but I know that you're going to add on and we're going to invite anyone who joins us to, to add it on to their trip is Tokyo Disney. And you've told me a lot about your experience there. And it was one of the first things you said, I'm going to Tokyo Disney. <laughs> so to tell us, and, and, you know, I love that because it sort of is, is that fun, that fun ad adult that you are. Um, tell us about your experience of Tokyo Disney. My experience of Disneyland, obviously, you know, when I was a child to me, I grew up every Sunday watching Disneyland on Sunday at 5.30 and I was pretty enamored with the whole thing and that kind of hasn't left me. So when I go to Disneyland, it brings me back to my inner child and reminds me that it's okay to be an adult but to be light and to have lightness and fun. Even though, you know, sometimes back in your real life, you know, everyone faces challenges and, you know, you have to work hard and, you know, on everything in your life. But I feel like it's a really nice escape and it does, it shows you about imagination and all of the stories from Disneyland and the rides are great. Buzz Lightyear's ride, you know, I, I love rides as well. So Big Thunder Mountain, I want to go on those <laughs> rides. So please join me if you want to come. I love that. So we end all of the podcasts with a quick fire round of questions. So this is like the first thing that jumps into your head when I um, ask you these things. So let's go. Let's go. So uh, favorite hotel anywhere? Milan, roommate Julia, Patricia Urquiola designed, absolutely superb, mid-tones, beautiful mid-greens with soft pinks as well. Uh, the best meal you've had on a work trip? Two here, Villa More in South Africa in Cape Town. Imagine the biggest Mozambique bugs you could eat, delicious. And the second one I would cite was at Chateau de Saran, which is the um, LVMH entertaining headquarters just out of FNA. We had drinks on the terrace while the nightingales were chirping and a full French menu washed down with several, a lot of glasses of Dom Perignon. Uh, best design city? Oh, hard, obviously, Tokyo, but also London. I adore London. I think there's a lot of discussion about design in London. You know, Copenhagen obviously is designed and beautiful, but I feel like people in London talk about design and I like it for that reason. Uh, your favourite shop in the world? Hard, Liberty of London, an all-time favourite. I guess it's the one of the only department stores apart from maybe Bergdorf, that's still, and obviously Bon Marché in Paris, that still have a 
desire or an enchantment or some sort of desire for me to go there. Uh, your favourite airport? Charles de Gaulle, just that in Paris, that beautiful design, um, the concrete, can't beat it. Uh, your favourite airline? Qantas, they have great ads. And I don't know, it's that really basic thing of feeling safe. Um, you're the friendliest country you've been to? Definitely Japan. Uh, can you work on planes or in airports? I can hatch great plans on an aircraft. I'm not tapping away at the computer. I'm probably watching, I don't know, some movie I've pre-watched before for comfort, but I feel like my mind is open and it's wandering and thinking of new stuff and taking we'll, it in. We'll call that plans on planes. Yeah, plans on planes. Let's go with that. Uh, any memorable celebrity encounters? So many. Um, always in line at customs. So just name dropping here, Jude Law. I sat behind him on a flight from London to Paris um, and made sure I got up out of my seat in line so that I was behind him as we went through customs and immigration. Very smart. Happy days. Uh, preferred luggage brand? Well, Goyard. Not that I have, <laughs> have trunk loads of Goyard, but I do have a cat bag. It's large enough but light enough to go everywhere, and that sits perfectly on top of a 10-year-old mandarina duck bag, which has not failed me yet. And then I fill those bags with packing cells and as much Anya Heinmarsh makeup and jewellery little totes as I can. So I think you've touched on this, but do you pack light or heavy? Curated. Really got it down to what I need, plus some attention-seeking accessories, you know, because obviously you're re-wearing stuff. You just want to add a brooch here and there. And where's your next destination? Tokyo. Oh, here we Tokyo. come next March. Fantastic. Can't wait. Well, that's a great way to finish up. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me. To hear more from Amanda, listen to her podcast, The Creative Trust, or to learn more about our Japan journey, um, visit the links in this podcast. Can't wait. See you soon. See you at the airport. Yeah, totally. See you then.